you wished upon a star. Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Disneyland. Hi and welcome back to the Defunctland Podcast. My name is Kevin Perger. I'm joined today by two very special guests, Stephanie DeBruzzo and Craig Shemin. How are you two doing today? Hello. Doing great. I'm, I'm super excited to have you on. Um, as we as I talked about beforehand, I, I'm just huge fans of the both of you. Um, Stephanie, I've loved your puppetry, your uh, your work in theater and on screen. And, um, and then Craig, again, I didn't realize uh, how much of your work I've actually watched because, you know, writers are like the unsung heroes of the industry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but we're gonna we're gonna sing you a praise tonight um, because we're going to talk all about the webulous world of Dr. Seuss. Um, so if anybody's listening that doesn't know these two, you definitely know their work. Um, Craig has was the creator of Lou and Lou Safety Patrol on Disney Channel. He's written for Curse the Cowardly Dog, Blues Clues, Doran Friends, Ubi, and Gold Goa Island. He's the president of the Jim Henson Legacy. Stephanie uh, is an actress puppeteer known for her work on shows such as Ubi, The Book of Pooh, Sesame Street, a musical such as Avenue Q, and the best episode of Scrubs, um, and much, much more. We're here today to talk about The Webulous World of Dr. Seuss, the Nickelodeon Seuss Henson collaboration that ran for two seasons in the late 90s. I have these two, you know, wealth of knowledge on everything in the puppetry and, and, and TV world, and I'm asking you about the most specific, uh, obscure thing possible. Is um, it the, but I, I, I still think that we're we're pretty obscure. I don't know that we're the most obscure. Probably in the top three. Yeah. I, yes. Because you, you think you think Webulous World is like the most is not the most obscure. I don't think it's the most obscure. Well, I, we could get more obscure. Well, no. I, I think that I think that there are projects that like didn't make it past pilot that that uh, Craig remembers when he was at Henson that are more obscure. Well, Aliens in the Family I think is more obscure. Which neither of us worked on. Neither of us worked on it, but uh, it was a network show. It was on ABC, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is? What, what <laughs> you is, haven't what, heard of it. See, I know, I know. Well, that, that that's means a, that's it's an, more obscure. <laughs> that's an immediate trump card. If I haven't heard of it, I can't. I can't yeah, speak exactly. To it. Now, Aliens in the Family is basically um, it was a Henson produced show, and the idea was, what if the Brady Bunch uh, had. Uh, that, that that half of the Brady Bunch were aliens. That that uh, if uh, you know if if Mike Brady was a human and he married Carol, who was an alien and and had air, alien children. And it was sort of that follow up to dinosaurs. So the puppets oh were the, the puppet versions. The aliens were the puppets, and it was a very similar uh, sort of feel because uh, dinosaurs had been such a hit. Um, oh, I know what I'm doing on the next episode of Defunct TV. Yeah. I just Googled it. Whoa. Yeah, there um, you go. See? Okay, okay, so yeah, you beat me. That's more obscure. <laughs> um, but Webulous World of Dr. Seuss. Um, I just did this, you know, my one of my retrospective history videos on it. Uh, it was very difficult to find information. Um, sometimes I try to do these information-based podcasts um, before finishing the episode, but in this case, uh, just the way it worked out. So I might actually learn, I'm, I'm assuming that I'm going to learn a lot more than what old newspapers could tell me. So mm-hmm. maybe if you two could just speak to 
how you first heard of the show, like the first, you know, first whisper that there oh, was such a show going on. Craig can do more than that. <laughs> well, it was, uh, you know, what what you talked about was actually uh, fairly accurate. The word came around that the uh, Dr. Seuss Enterprises, uh, which was the entity run by uh, Audrey Geisel and, and Herb, uh, Chayette. Herb Chayette from uh, his agency, um, they were uh, they got word around that they were interested in doing a television series and that they would be accepting proposals and um the henson sort of ace in the hole was uh, a man named michael frith and michael had worked for dr seuss he was uh, michael was uh, an, an editor for the uh, beginner books uh, line at uh, random house so he knew and worked with Dr. Seuss for, for years. And he wrote the book Because a Bug Went Kachoo. Yeah. So Michael uh, was uh, the vice president of creative services at the time of the Jim Henson Company and my boss. So I was in the group that uh, they sort of asked Michael to put together the proposal that they would take to uh, first to the Seuss uh organization and then eventually to Nickelodeon. So um, we gathered around and sort of pitched ideas. We brought in a couple of other people. I think Lou Berger was in on some of those meetings and Louise Gickow. Uh, Lou Berger was a writer on Sesame Street for a long time. Louise Gickow, longtime writer, worked on the... Sesame Street worked on Between the Lions. Yes. Mm, And... um, And I think, uh, you know, our regular internal team, it was me and Jenny Lupinacci. And um, I think Jim was in L.A. at the time. Jim Lewis. Jim Lewis was in L.A. And uh, basically tried to figure out what a TV show would be. And at first, the idea was to both adapt the existing Seuss uh, books as well as create new ones. And um, we uh, created some uh, storylines. We uh, sort of drafted some treatments. Michael created some art. And then they thought what would really sort of seal the deal with the Seuss estate is uh, something that an animated company couldn't do, which was basically create the character in, in, uh, in three dimensions. So they, Michael and the, the Henson Workshop I think Ed Christie was involved. They built uh, mm-hmm. Thidwick the mm, Moose yes, first. Mm-hmm. And I figure, I think that the logic was let's start with Thidwick because if they start with the puppet of the cat in the hat, then the Seuss people might get really nervous. Uh, no, no, they would just be very hypercritical because well, sure. you're starting with like the, who's going to voice that character? Who's going to, yeah, who are you going to give that to? And uh, so they built uh, Thidwick the Moose. We did a little um, video where I was not involved with that. <laughs> yeah, it was just a little video where, uh, you know, Thidwick. Basically, I think Michael did voiceover talking about the types of things we would be doing. And then Thidwick essentially walks into the video off the page, uh, you know, uh, against a blue screen. We had him, we had the page from the Thidwick book, and then Thidwick the puppet comes in and says some stuff. And that video was sent out there. And I think they also brought the puppet out just to sort of show. And I think that, um, 
really succeeded in in getting Henson the um, bid, the as bid. it were. Yeah, but then it was about um, the next step was to get the uh, Nickelodeon on board, and I think this was all happening around the same time as they were thinking that of using the CG backgrounds, mm-hmm. the computer generated backgrounds, which was really unprecedented, especially oh, the, the unique thing that, that Seuss did was to do the show in real time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those backgrounds were not done in post. They were done in real time. They were, um, every they movement were helped in post, right? But every movement, if a CG door opened, there was a guy opening that door on the set live that we would puppeteer to. And the Henson Creature Shop was working on some technology where they could integrate the control of the CG background with the camera control. So when uh, you could either have the camera pan match the pan uh, of the background, so you can pan, you know, a character could move with the background or you could lock it down. Right, or you could move against it. So you could pan against it. Um, And all of that was being developed. Um, You know, the, the technology was moving so fast at the yeah, time. Yeah, that, this was uh, 1990, end of 1995 that it was being developed, right? Because yeah. we, we started production spring of 96. So in 1995, Craig wrote the Muppet CD-ROM. Uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was, a, it was an amazing award-winning uh, CD-ROM video game that was going to launch only on Windows 95 which made Craig very nervous because your computer had to have Windows 95 in order to run it. And, and it was a brand new well, operating yeah, Windows system. Windows 95 had not been released. So he but, thought, you know, what, what's going to happen? So you've like, there were, things were happening we, uh, every few months, a new chip would come out. We actually out. did at mm-hmm. one point uh, have a production hiatus because a new computer had come out. Yeah. That would make production easier. So we shut down production for a week while they put everything in. Yeah, it seemed like every every 6 months the the uh the technology was doubling and tripling what it was capable of doing. So when they did uh at that point they decided for the pitch to Nickelodeon, they went ahead and built um the Cat in the Hat. Uh and they made a video of the Cat in the Hat being built. So uh all that pitch to Nickelodeon um had uh, Fidwick, it had the, the cat in the hat being built. And then they had a puppeteer in the room during the pitch. And I think it was Marty. Oh, the, okay. The, the, the Marty Mar- Robinson, Martin Robinson. Martin Robinson, who did the original uh, pitch for the cat in the hat. He would go on to come back and do season two as the cat. And then um, I was not at that pitch, but apparently it went well. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, we can only presume. Said- he said, well, so that, that there was a section of the video where I said that Herb Scandal said it was the best pitch he had ever had, ever seen. And that was not, I didn't just like pull that out of nowhere. That was like a direct quote from either representative or him in a where newspaper. Did, where like, did you, oh, you found that in a newspaper? Okay. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was like a 1997 newspaper. Okay. 96. Interesting. So it was like just when the show came out. Right. Yeah, I don't doubt it was because it was. Michael had really put a lot of effort into crafting a pitch yeah. and, you and know, everything was discussed. Gorgeous. Those whole, puppets were um, so beautiful. You know, the technology, I think what really sold both Seuss and Nickelodeon is that the, the CG technology, while primitive and in, in its infancy, would allow 
all of the the SUS settings to be created. Uh, you could actually have because um, Michael always pointed out that um, SUS created backgrounds and worlds in a way that could not really be built in the real world. There were flying buttresses yeah. and uh, angles, so and, many curves, and dangling and things. It was it was very illustrated. Yeah. And I think unless you had, that's why I think the animated specials always worked so well, but the later attempts to do the live action stuff to build those physical sets, they always looked a little off um, because, you know, you, he, <laughs> Ted Geisel wasn't an architect. <laughs> he wasn't, <laughs> the, the, these were, these were truly things that existed in their own world. The other thing was um, it could allow multiple worlds. Mm -hmm. you know, the world could be so much bigger than a single set to have it be animated that way. Yeah. And um, so the the uh, the pitch included all of the details about the computer graphics. It had the real puppets in the room. It had video of the puppets, talked about the types of things, the stories. And I think basically um, the only change from what we had sort of envisioned as the show is that we were not really allowed to do the original books. We couldn't reenact the actual books. We, we had access to any of the characters and we could have new stories that take place with those characters. We could create new characters, uh, but we couldn't do, uh, we couldn't touch the original books. Which was probably better yeah. anyway. And I think part of it was that they were, uh, you know, they well, were starting to license those out for yeah. individual projects. That's right. Because I remember what the Cat in the Hat movie got greenlit while we were working on season one. Yeah. Um, and then there were a whole lot of little details. Like, you know, one of the things that was very important to both Henson and Seuss, I believe, is that the show had to air in prime time. And, um, and that was sort of a deal breaker. Nickelodeon did not necessarily want a cat, a, a, a wobbly yeah. world of Dr. Seuss in prime time, but that's um, you know they anticipated it would air. Uh, we our our air dates were Sunday nights at eight, and mm -hmm. then it would air on the Nick Junior. Uh, and then the other thing that was sort of ironed out in in business affairs, and this is another fun thing when you look at the merchandise, the of, little merchandise that there was. Yeah, um, they were not allowed uh, to have the cat in a hat by himself on anything well no any of the characters because horton too remember that that ornament with oh, Horton yeah. has a little bird on him yeah so you had to have like a little hensony uh susian creature with because i think the, the distinction character. was it had to be specifically wobulous world of dr seuss merchandise because they were selling licensing rights there's some really lovely the yeah they're separately. right but there's some really lovely ornaments that came out in 1997, we have the Horton and the Grinch and the Cat in the Hat, and they they all have like a little bird or a little mouse. So you know, yeah, and the show them. was the show got sold, and they started uh, gearing up for it. And at that point, I didn't know if I was going to be working on it uh, because they were bringing in the showrunner, um, head writer David Stephen Cohen, and he was basically uh, you know I, I met with him. He was told that you know. I, I was on staff for the Henson company at the time. So if I wanted to, uh, if he wanted to use me, he could do that without it coming out of his budget. And basically mm -hmm. I would get paid only when I wrote scripts, I didn't have to be paid on a, on a, a weekly, uh, salary. So that made it appealing for David to use me. And then he was trying he, while he was filling out 
his team they were doing the auditions, I think. Yeah. Uh, so there were there were three executive producers on the show. It was, it was Brian Henson, Michael Frith, and David Stephen Cohen. Um, David Stephen Cohen was new to the Muppet world and to Henson and everything like that. And, and he came out of the world <laughs> of, of sitcoms. He had worked on yeah. Alf and Living mm-hmm. Single. And uh, uh, what was the other one? Uh, Parker Lewis. Parker Lewis. That's right. Um, so I started uh, my first day on Sesame Street was November 1990 in November of 1993. So when I auditioned for Seuss in January or February of 1996, um, I was still relatively new and it was kind of a big deal that I was asked to audition. I had done some Sesame Street. I had done season two of a show called The Puzzle Place. Uh, I, uh, I had replaced someone else on that, but I only did one out of the two, the three seasons that they did. Um, I had done a show on, on the learning channel, uh, when it was still the learning <laughs> channel. Uh, I had done like just, just little things here and there. So to be asked to audition for a Henson show, um, was a really big deal. And I remember, uh, going to this audition and not knowing, so that was where David's, uh, that was where I met David Stephen Cohen. He didn't know me. He had met Craig. Craig and I got married in September of 95. I was going by DeBruzzo. Craig was Craig Shemin. David did not know that we were married. And I think Chris Gifford, the executive at Nickelodeon, um, who was one of our executives, uh, Chris Gifford and Brown Johnson were our Nickelodeon executives on the show. And uh, Chris did not know. I don't think you had met Gifford yet. No. Um, Chris did not know that Craig and I were married. And, and, and I, all along, what the I think their goal all along was to create a ensemble of five people. Yeah, that who would play most, all the characters, the characters, the new characters, and the Seuss characters. Because they, it, you know, all of these decisions were made for budgetary reasons. You know, they oh, wanted yeah. to have a, a five people on, you know, on a on a salary. Uh, that could do all of these things, then occasionally they would bring in a guest star. Right. And what you have to remember at that time, Muppets Tonight was in production in LA. (laughs) Uh, Sesame Street was in production. And that was still the time when they were shooting six months out of the year and doing 120 episodes. So that was a big deal. So they weren't really, I mean, I'm trying to, I don't remember who else I auditioned with, but I think it was one of the reasons why I was asked to audition is because I wasn't ensconced in any of these other shows. Um, I had only, you know, I did a smattering, I had done a smattering of days on Sesame street at that point. Um, so I went in and I had a really good audition. I felt so good about things and, um, and I got to do it and I found out that I got the job not long after Craig found out that he was going to be writing on it. And what did, did I'm trying to remember when David realized that he had hired your wife. I think I I told him because what was interesting is that the other, you know, and the other staff, um, and the other performers, one of the other performers was Kathy Mullen. Right. Who's married to Michael Michael Frith. Frith, Right. (laughs) Yeah. All these Um, puppeteers are married to each other. Well, no, uh, or see, I that's guess the, the thing. puppeteers and the writers. Right. There are very few puppeteers who are married to other puppeteers, but there are definitely puppeteers who are married to other people in the world. Because, uh, so, you know, they spend so much time in the studio, they don't meet anybody else. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you know, again, it's a long story with, with, with Craig and me, but um, 
Craig was probably one of the few people who understood what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, it, it really, we the only times Craig and I ever worked together on shows were uh, were Seuss and Ubi. And even on Seuss, one of the funny things about it is we shot this in New York. So the um, the studio was a fairly small studio. It didn't have to be big because it was all a blue screen. Right. The first season. It was a was tiny, a very tiny studio. And it was the Henson uh, studio. It's called Carriage House nowadays. But it's a very small place. The third floor was where the computer-generated people were uh, kept and where they did their um, advance work mm-hmm. and ran the show uh, during uh, production. And then the second floor was control rooms uh, and, and tech stuff. So there was no room in the studio for our production office and the writer's office. Right. So we, uh, you know, I had my own office at the Henson headquarters. Uh, but they decided to rent office space like three blocks away yeah. from the studio. And they actually rented the <laughs> office space in a medical building. Right. It was a small little <laughs> medical building. So it actually said, you know, third floor, Dr. Seuss. Yeah, on that little uh, anyway, directory like, you know, with the little first, felt letters. Second floor, Dr. Goldberg. Right. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. People thought that's, it was a joke, funny. but it yeah. was absolutely true. But the, and then when it would, our our office, the, we were on that floor, and it would, had been a dentist's office, so all the offices oh, had, had sinks, sinks in, in them. them. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So Craig could be very, very clean. So yeah. So uh, so we so, both got hired to work on this show. Well, not to backtrack, but how did you? So so and so when did you? You two were married at the time. So when did you two get married? Well, we got married uh, in September of 1995. We actually met through mutual Northwestern University friends. Uh, Craig and I both went to Northwestern. We were not undergrads together. And we both happened to meet at this very magical, wonderful place. Um, Northwestern has these residential colleges, which are basically these themed, I like to call them co-ed fraternities, that focus on different things. There's an international studies residential college. There's a performing arts residential studies. We lived in the communications residential college. And it was it, it really was a, a co-ed fraternity. It had its own traditions and um, it, it had its own video equipment. So it was a play. And at a time when uh, Craig graduated in 88, I graduated in 93, at a time when you did not have a video studio in your pocket the way you do now. Uh, I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a video camera. We could make movies at three in the morning. And we did. Uh, the residents were made up mostly of radio TV film majors, but there were also a lot of um, Medill journalism majors and uh, College of Arts and Science majors and music majors, uh, people who are uh, tech majors, people who are all sort of willing to dive in and make things. We had an in-dorm radio station. Uh, we had a dark room. And we sort of did stuff. And because it was this sort of very fraternal in nature, um, and at the time there was a housing shortage on campus, Craig lived there for all four years of his undergrad experience. I lived there for all four years of my undergrad experience. And I met uh, through people who were freshmen when Craig was a senior were upperclassmen when I came in. So I heard Craig's name before I ever met him. Uh, So... I started getting interested in puppetry when I was in college. A good mutual friend of ours, um, you know, told me about Craig and projects, puppet projects that Craig had done in college. Craig dabbled in puppetry for a brief amount of time. 
I'm glad he stopped. I don't think I could have married a puppeteer. Um, but <laughs> anyway, uh, Craig came to campus uh, when the Jim Henson, the works book was being published. There was a large Henson exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And Craig came out to research it. So our mutual friend, Chris Araneta said, hey, Craig's coming to town. Craig Sheman, uh, you got to meet him. He's a great guy. He works at Henson. You'll love him. I had heard great things about Craig from so many other people that I'd met. So that was the first time we met in 1991, late 1991. And through a very um, strange series of events, um, I did a puppetry project that won a student Emmy. Um, through that, I met, oh God, is this, is, this is a really long story. Um, she auditioned for the Muppets. I auditioned, I auditioned for the Muppets through David Rudman, who's a Sesame Street Muppet performer and runs Spiffy Pictures with Adam Rudman, who does Nature Cat on so PBS. So to I New York for the a, audition. We that's right. We, we met, met, we got together, um, we hit it off, uh, yada, 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 yada. <laughs> we, when I, graduated from college and came to town for Muppet workshops. He let me stay with him. Yada, yada, yada. We fell in love <laughs> and we got married. So we had this whole history very separate from Muppets. A lot of people assume we met at Muppets, um, but it was Northwestern and, and CRC that, that, that brought us together. Thank you for yada yadaing me, and because I was spinning my wheels, it's it's a it's a story that is very long and very sweet and very fun. Um, but you <laughs> that's only in the have, yada yadas. That's that's all in the yada yadas. So we celebrated, yeah, we celebrated our first anniversary working on Seuss. I at the time, I mean, I think when I auditioned, I think Craig was being talked to about yeah. being a writer, but that oh. wasn't a thing yet. Yeah, we so were, that's I even would, more coincidental. Yeah, yeah. So like I couldn't <laughs> even go in and say, Oh, Hey, you talk to my husband. He's going to, he's going to be a writer on your show. <laughs> yeah. Like we weren't I, worried about conflict of interest. Cause I had no power or authority. Well, or right. Well, right. Yeah. That's the other um, thing is, you know, what, what's the joke about who goes to Hollywood and sleeps with the writer, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's Yeah. So it's not, it's not a so, thing. So did you two just like, I mean, this of course doesn't happen, but in, in the, in the fictionalized version, the movie version of this, yeah. you would have both gone home and be like, I just had this great audition. That's so crazy. I just had this great interview. What was it for? And well, then you would both say that. No, at the same it wasn't, time. it wasn't quite that yeah, coincidental we, with the we two knew of we us. Were, we there knew were that rumblings. It was the same project. Yeah. We, there were you know. rumblings, but it was all sort of like, I don't know if this is going to happen for both of us. Mm. And I think by the time we were notified that it was happening, it was within, I yeah. feel like a couple and days. And I was very fortunate because I think the main reason that I got uh, the opportunity to work on the show is that I was not, uh, you know, I didn't cost them anything uh, other than the script fees that they had to pay to anybody. Yeah, but you but, were so good at they, what you did. Yeah, so, but it it was also one of my first big jobs. It was. I had, it was your first I, Writer's Guild job, right? No, I, no, I had done Gullah Gullah Island, Oh, that's right. Uh, before that. That's right. Um, Oh, so that it, it probably was, helped that you it were in the guild. It was my first big Henson right. job. Yes, because uh, I think this was. Well, you've done Dog City. Yeah, I had done Dog City, but the animated was, uh, series, which is probably seen, you know, you, that might a, be more obscure, the animated Dog City. But I Henson know did. about Dog City. Well, no, you know about you know about the special. 
No. Do you Fox know about the Kids? Fox Kids series? Oh. <laughs> oh, see, that, then, okay, that's the second time I've been trumped. So uh, yeah. okay. I've been to- the, yeah, yeah, no, everybody okay. knows about, well, the, the people who are quality people know about the Jim Henson <laughs> Hour Dog City special that's uh, that won an Emmy for Jim Henson, but, but fewer people know about the Fox Kids uh, Dog City series that was puppets and animation. Oh, that no. That was this also shot nuts. at the Henson Carriage House. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, um, but I had... This was seen as a very high profile oh, project. Oh, very so, yes, it very much was. Um, so, uh, you know, I I was fortunate, but I think that it was an basically our main writing staff was David uh and Will Ryan. Um Will was was an LA based um voiceover artist and songwriter and um David, David knew him well. David knew him and brought him in to work on this. And then it was me. And then we would bring in other guest writer, uh, Belinda guest writers, Ward, Belinda Ward um, and um, Karen, uh, Karen oh, yeah. Greenberg, I think. Yeah, uh, Sesame Writers. Um, Alan Lou, Newworth. Lou Berger. Alan Newworth and Gary Cooper, Lou yeah. Berger. And, um, and then it was the three of us, David, Will, and I, that we sort, were sort of, of the main, we're the main, main core, core of, the, of the writing staff. And um, so it was, it was a great uh, opportunity. Um, but I know that David was really, you know, he wanted to make things letter perfect. Yeah. And I remember him spending um, like six weeks on just the pilot script um, because he wanted the, the rhymes to be perfect. He wanted to be worthy of Seuss. And, you know, it, it was tough to reconcile that against our production schedule, which. Well, not you know, only that, I mean, you had, I think that. David had one idea of what it should be. I think Michael Frith had another idea of what it should be. Brian was not really on site. Mm -hmm. He was in LA working on Muppets Tonight. He did come and direct um, a couple of episodes, but you, you had people who all, it was all done with love, but I think the priorities, you know, Michael's a very visual uh, guy. Um, It was a, the whole process was a lesson about trying to figure out how to work within these limitations, right? Uh, and the limitations show, we had limitations budget. of budget, and also the biggest one is, is technical, right? Um, well, I don't know if it's the biggest one, but I remember that um, the computer had a finite number of polygons yes. that you could create the background with. And Michael, he loved adding a, trees. He he is a guy who always loves to tinker with things. Well, he and, is an impeccable artist. Yeah. His artwork is, you know, glorious. And uh, he would just, you know, he's like, let's put another tree in the background here. And, and then it would crash and, and the, the whole computer, system. Adam, Adam would be, yeah. I don't know. It's like, it's one tree. One, would, what could one and, tree do? It know, actually we, was a Susian story. If yeah. you really break that down, what could one tree do? <laughs> and in that case, it the would, whole forest would be crashes. down for 30 minutes while they rebooted 30 the minutes, huh? No, I'm optimistic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I remember early on, there was a conversation with David. He wanted the little cats to sort of act as a Greek chorus. And he was talking about getting other vocalists to have them sing. So that all of their stuff, all the little cat Greek chorus stuff. Oh, wasn't he talking about the roaches? The roaches. That's who it was. I couldn't remember who it was. Uh, the roach sisters, um, to sing, to, to have the, be the singing voices of the little cats and have them sort of pop up in all these different ways. And then I remember there was a huge discussion about whether all of the shows should rhyme. 
whether just it should only be the cat in the hat who rhymed, whether it should be all of the characters who rhyme, whether that would happen sometimes or all of the time. Um, and, you know, a lot of people had really strong feelings about it because and the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, Michael would always uh, remind us that uh, Ted Geisel wrote 40 books in 40 years. Right. And we were trying to do 20 episodes in, in six months or eight months. Or yeah, whatever. I think it's a common misconception of children's television and any work for, for, for a young audience is that it's easier. Um, and it's, it's not. And I think where we, uh, with the exception of some stories, we basically rhymed when we felt it was necessary. Yeah. Um, I think that the story was a really big driver of that first season. And I think that was the one thing about your, your retrospective that I really appreciated your noticing was the, uh, the attention to, to storytelling in that first season. And the first season also uh, was important to note is, was, you know, we were writing a show for eight o'clock at Sunday nights. It was nice to write something that was going to be aimed at families and not just, I think this was at a time, I think the hardcore segmenting was just starting to happen mm -hmm. in the children's television world. Like the concept of children's television had not been divided into sub divisions of preschool television and children's television. Like you didn't have what you have today where you have the two to fours and the five to sevens and the seven to eights. I think this show was aimed at five to, to we 10. Were, they were shooting for eight year olds was the right. But spot. they were saying it could <laughs> appeal to five to like that's five to 10 is huge. And then they wanted, you know, it to be a family thing. They don't do that anymore. They they well, definitely we, don't. The, the, the well, they have a channel for everything now. Yeah, exactly. We were doing a show that the eight year olds were enjoying. Yeah, and um, we went to uh, do a focus group. Oh, Craig's focus group story. And it's the first time <laughs> Craig was ever privy to a focus group. We went up to some place in White Plains and we watched the kids be shown an episode. And, and you were behind the glass. We were behind the glass watching, and um, the kids. It was fascinating. How old were those kids? They were mostly seven and eight. Mm -hmm. And they all really enjoyed it. The only, the, the boys would look away when there was even a hint of anything romantic happening. Because <laughs> I think we showed them the king's beard and. Oh, with the princess? Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, if there was anything about a princess and a mm -hmm. prince getting together, they would sort of look away. Um, but the kids all loved the show. And then the moderator asked, would you tell your friends to watch it and they all said no <laughs> why because this is for little kids yeah and they're these are seven and eight year olds yeah um and you know it, it, that was a tough thing yeah that that's when i think they they realized that it was going to be a mostly a, a show for nick jr and not uh, a family yeah show. because then when season two rolled around we got all new showrunners. We got all new writers. And that's when it became a and essentially a It became a Nick show. Jr. show. All the characters changed. But to I do want to point out characters. that um, right after they had basically, uh, you know, cleaned house of, of the writers, right after that, the Writers Guild Award that's nominations right. came out. Two and, scripts. No, three. Oh, after, three? Out of the, out of the what five. Was the, who was the third one? It was... Uh, Linda's? No, it was Alan and it was oh. the birthday moose, I think. Oh, yeah, that was good. Uh, out that of the five good. nominated scripts for best children's script, 
three of them were yeah. from Mobile we're... Disorder, Dr. Seuss. Yeah. So that uh, was, was Zubble Womp, yeah. uh, Road to Calary, yeah. and Birthday Moves. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, Zubble Womp, that was the first one. Yeah. yeah. And that was, uh, and that that was the one that won. Yeah. David won. But what was so funny is that that was a script that David had spent six weeks oh, man. slaving on. Yeah. And, and we had to reshoot some stuff too from the it, script I that, that Will Ryan and I were, were nominated for. That's right. Uh, that was you pounded that out the like road to Calary because two days? I believe we were working on rewriting somebody else's script, uh-huh. and we it was a you know we started it on like a Monday afternoon and finished it on Tuesday, yeah, and it got a nomination. Of course, it didn't win. You had we had to, we would have had to spend. Six but it was a really fun. There, I remember. I mean, it was a dream show for me because I it was exactly what I always hoped working for the Muppets would be. Um, I would watch, you know, the Muppet show when I was in college and just think about like all the character work that people got to do. And I would watch Sesame Street and just like all this character work. And I mean, because it was the five of us, the core, the core puppeteers, Anthony Asbury, Bruce Lanoil, John Kennedy, Kathy Mullen and myself. And then we would have assistants uh, come in, uh, right, you know, people to right hand and assist. We had Tim Legassi, we had uh, little Johnny Tartaglia. John Tartaglia graduated <laughs> from high school during production of Seuss. Oh my God. That I've known Johnny a long time. Um, so, so yeah, uh, because there were so few of us and so many characters, you would have that thing where you would you would be playing a background character and then you would run across the run across the 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 studio with your head ducked down and grab another character and go across the set again. And there were shows where because we were doing computer generation. And a lot of blue screening, we would have all these layered shots. Anytime you saw 20 puppets in a frame, and we did that so much. It was so great. It was usually three layers of mm-hmm. six puppeteers. And it was and, the first, one of the early times when we were using digital tape. So right. So you could do those layers without having any, having any generation degradation. Right. And you could react to what you saw on the, because we all work off of monitors, so we could see both layers. So you could react so to the puppet in the other layer. Ask. Yeah. So, so, sorry to interrupt, but no, no, I, that not was one of my specific questions. Um, I was going to ask you specifically. So I know you're, you're monitoring while you're puppeteering, and this has been explained to me by Noel and other puppeteers, and it sounds like the, the, the worst thing in the world to try to figure out from someone that doesn't do puppetry. It sounds very confusing when everything's mirrored. Um, but then on top of that, were you seeing the real-time renders of the backgrounds, or did you see yes. a blue screen? No. Well, okay. no, we saw real-time renders. There were only a couple of times where we wouldn't see, uh, where we would only see a blue screen. But whenever we would do doubling and layering, um, we would start with the back, obviously. We'd go back to front. So we would do the back layer first, and then we would do the middle layer. And when we're doing the middle layer, you could have your puppet look back at the back row and nod at the person, and then, and then you, we'd do the front layer. And so we would just build these layers. And it's, so it's the only time where I can look at a show and say, wow, I was doing a main character. I was doing that background character. I was doing three characters in this group shot. Like it was my dream to be able to just do everything. And then I'll, I would also assist, you know, I would jump in and, and right hand in a scene. I mean, it was like by nature, Muppet performers have to be full utility players at all times. There are very few scenarios where you're not called in to do multiple things. Obviously, Noel on Bear is the exception. Noel was in the Bear. He couldn't often play other characters, except when Bear wasn't in the scene. 
think there were some times where he was holding tighter than he could be. That's true. But you know what I mean? Like he wasn't right-handing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I loved being able to just play so many different characters. And the first season, especially, we had such a wide range of types of characters and just using within, every within, character voice in the, in my crayon box. Within the, the, the uh, limitations of the production budget, because that was the, right. that called for the invention of the who's it. Right. Which was the base. It was basically the anything Muppet of the Seuss world. So in Sesame Street, we have the anything Muppets. Um, Muppets have the whatnots. And Muppets have the whatnots, where you have the basic shape of the head that can be redressed by changing all of the facial features and the wigs and the hats and the costumes to create new characters. Michael and Ed Ith, who was uh, one of the designers on the show, amazing artist, uh, they created created the basic basic head shapes. For the who's-its. Yeah. And they all had that little Seuss pupil with the little that's um, right the little cutout notch um but also just just the shapes of those heads were unique to the seuss world they were not the shapes that they were not shapes that were used on sesame street they were not shapes that were used in muppets um they are used on uh well those yeah so if anybody has ever seen the live um puppet improv show puppet up or stuffed and unstrung as it was called for a while a lot of seuss puppets are used as those puppets because they basically use puppets that weren't being used for anything else. And because the Seuss puppets were so unique in their shape, they couldn't do double duty on anything else. Um, so then, I've seen Seuss new. I, I saw Seuss news head. And, and I uh, think we had a budget for every other show to actually create a one puppet for every third show. Cause that's how oh, yeah. we were able to get Morton. Oh, made. right. Right, right, right. Um, and some, like the, some of the birds were had to be. Okay. Built. Oh, the birthday bird. Birthday bird. Um, yeah, there was. But, but you know, considering you, you keep talking about the the, the budget limitations, but I, the more I think about it, we had a lot. I mean, we had, we had Jane and Junior and Horton and the Grinch and Yertle and Thidwick and the Wickersham brothers. And I think wasn't and the cat I and think the three Thidwick little cats was built a few episodes in. He didn't. He wasn't in it. No, he was built. That was the Thidwick they used for the press presentation. Oh, Thidwick. I'm sorry, the Yurtle. I'm sorry. Oh, Yurtle may have been done later. Yeah. Well, no, but because I remember Anthony when we were when we were trying to figure out mm. who was going to play who. Uh, that was the other thing. We were all cast. The five of us were cast before anybody knew who was going to play what central character. In fact, I remember Raleigh Crewson, uh, who's a longtime Muppet builder, a, a staggeringly brilliant puppet builder. She was a little frustrated because she assumed that Kathy Mullen was playing Jane Kangaroo. Kathy has much longer arms than I do. So Jane was very long on me. And she's like, I thought Kathy was going to play this character. We sort of did workshops as the puppets were being, some of the puppets were built before we were cast. You know, if you knew there was going, so once it was decided, okay, John's going to play Horton and and Anthony's going to play Thidwick and Bruce is going to be the cat and um, who's going to play, you know, Heather Tidbittle and who's going to play, you know, Sue Snoo. And I think Norval the Fish was built later too. No, Norval was the one that was built later. 
Oh, and, and Fox and Fox and Knox were built pretty early on too. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of the main characters. Well, set. when you do a puppet show, when you do a, any like, show, more sort of than show, any show we do well, now. If you want to have puppets built, you sort of have to preload that into your budget. It is in. a big upfront cost. So when they're budgeting the show, you know, when we're making our list of characters or when mm-hmm. anybody's, you want to try and make that list as long as possible because you know that there's a chance that those are the only puppets you'll be able to right. have made. Right. But um, yeah, so it was it was always fun to see a script come in and see like, well, okay, so what combination of Seuss characters and new characters are there going to be? And um, it was it was so much fun to get to do something new every week and to then also have consistency with doing other little characters um, to see what I could do with Jane, to see what I could do with little cat B, even though the little cats didn't really have arcs they sort of developed personalities that the, and that the writers, you know, you guys were writing, there were only a couple of scripts that were done or was it just the pilot that was done when we started shooting? I like, think, I we, don't think there was a stack. I, no, I think there, there King's beard was in, I think that was the that second, was the second one. one. I think that was in some mm-hmm. semblance of being written. Yeah. So the writers started writing for the performers to some and degree. And it was fortunate that we had to stop production for the computer stuff because we needed to also stop production to get the, the writing schedule. Right. Out. But then we would also have, like uh, Craig mentioned earlier, guest puppeteers come in. So, uh, and those were the people who were working on Sesame and- and, and uh, Jerry and, Nelson. Yeah, and, uh, and Muppets. Um, Jerry Nelson came in, Joey Mazzarino came Bill in. Beretta. Bill Barretto is the first time I ever met and worked with Bill was uh was on uh Sue Snoo and I was scared to death because I think he was one of the last Muppet performers I hadn't encountered and met and I knew how brilliant he was and oh my gosh he's the most giving giving performer just so so sweet and lovely to work with uh Camille Benara Camporis uh guested um she was one of the last projects she did before she was sort of retired from puppetry um, I wound up, she played a Sally Spingle Spunglesporn, the reporter, and then I wound up playing her uh, in a later episode in season one because Camille's like, ah, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> so I got to play a Camille character, which meant a lot to me because I, I hold Camille in such high regard. Camille, uh, my very first day of working on Sesame Street, Camille was one of the performers that I worked with and she sort of guided me and took me under her wing a little. Um, but we just had a blast because also we were a little I don't want to say we were off the radar we were an important show but once set you know with Sesame Street in production and Muppets Tonight in production we sort of we we like the good arm rods went to Sesame and Muppets (laughs) Tonight we couldn't get (laughs) we couldn't get the good arm rods and then and then once we were in season two and Bear was in production Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we sort of were the we were always in last place when it came to resources, which for me is great because and I think I think it's become a hallmark of my work. You know, Avenue Q is the little show that could and no one had expectations of it, but we were just concerned with just doing a good show. And I think that being being 
it's not like we had low expectations because it was Seuss, but there was just something about being able to do something on our terms. You know, it was just fun. We could really embrace the fun and, and we cared a lot uh, about what we were doing, but it felt like because we were just in this tiny little studio, we didn't have a lot of people poking their heads in. It was a fascinating time because we were working these really long, ridiculously long hours. And I guess it was just because I was young and hungry and having so much. I mean, I have fun on every project I do, but there was something about this where it was just like, this is finally, I'm finally getting what I really want to do. And I feel really good about the work. Um, having, you know, wrapping at 11 at night was an early night for us. I mean, 12, 14, 16 hour days were not uncommon uh, on our show. And yet. And sometimes we would be in the writing room late too, because David was always about how perfection. can we make this better. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, Will Ryan and I ended up, we write, wrote several episodes together. And sometimes we would just try and get out of the office because we knew, you know, we needed it. Uh, we ended up doing a lot of writing at the California Pizza Kitchen. Yes. Down the block. But um, but Craig and I, you know, for working together, we didn't see each other as much as one would think because of the office, the writing office being down the street. If if one of my scripts was being done, I'd you be were on there. set. Um, so it was like, it, it, it was working together, but not working together, which was a great way to work together because mm-hmm. <laughs> we weren't, well, you know, we were working together and seeing each other on a show that had very long hours, but we weren't seeing each other every minute of every hour of every day. Right. And we also liked each other, which was nice. And we still do, which is also nice. I'm sure you have other questions that we've not given oh, yeah. you a chance to even ask. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I've been I've been sitting here and I've been listening. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by everything you're saying. I've been crossing off. Like, yep, you answer that basically. And ah. I, but I do have a, a one or two specific questions. Yeah. And I'd just like to do it, kind of just talk about the the show in general because it is it is such an odd show. And maybe, uh, well, I'll just ask this specific question. This is for Craig. Um, so you did you write the song? So it, it's it's a, it's it's interesting that you you were nominated um, for Road to Clary. Because coincidentally, which I did not know before I started researching you specifically for this podcast, um, that you wrote that show because we use that probably more than any other reference video in the defunct TV episode. I noticed ah. that. I, <laughs> I, I'm watching it and I said to Craig, there's your name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because they have you have the uh, a great example of the cat in the hat is the trickster god, as I described him. Um, and then you have uh, you have that song. And that's the question is you helped to write the song. Thank you. Susnu, correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that is the catchiest song I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. It is still stuck in my head. I don't know Wasn't what it is. That Joe Carroll and uh, Joe Carroll, I think and Peter Tom, Peter Tom yeah. at Manic Moose. Um, Peter Tom might've written. And here's a little thing that uh, Sue Snoo was introduced in an earlier episode. Yeah. Uh, and she was, who named, are you? Sue Snoo. That the character's name was because it was a character of Seuss. That was new. new. Oh, Seuss <laughs> new. Yeah. That, see? Oh, wow. That's, uh, see? Uh, yeah. Add that to the wiki, Wikipedia page, audience. Come on, get on that wiki. Mind <laughs> blown. Yeah. So, the, yeah, it was basically, it was, um, the lyrics are fairly ordinary. And I think at that point, Will and I were just, it was like, well, well we have to write a thank you song. Well, well like, actually, wait, new. but thank you, Seuss New 
was sort of a reprise of Who Are You, Sue Snoo yeah. from the Who oh, Are yeah, You, Sue yeah. Snoo episode. Yeah, we just re- repurposed it. So the episode, it was an early episode where Sue Snoo was inter- introduced. So that's the one with all the uncles where she's has to figure out who she wants to be when she grows up or she'll have to eat her hat. Um, there's a song, Who Are You, Sue Snoo? Yeah, and so the Thank yeah. You, Sue Snoo is actually a variation of the Who Are You, Sue Snoo yeah. song, and it's even arranged though, a little differently little, as well. It's uh, not as a little dialogue sequence. Yeah, and it's not as ro- it's not as driving and rocking, yeah. but they, it's 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 similar. And that must have been Joe and Peter, yeah, uh, doing that. It's such a catchy song, and I, that's why I had to ask about it specifically. And it's also because in the episode, because I edited it, I'm, I didn't edit that episode specifically, but I'm watching the edits and getting back to the editor, and I'm like, oh my gosh, because <laughs> I kept I listened, and so I'm just like, thank you, Sus. <laughs> um, but it's, I thought uh, you were gonna say the but, uh, we're um, on our way to Calari was because that's a pretty catchy song too. On our way to Calari was also that's also we, a good one. We wrote that. Well, those with, are uh, Road to Morocco, right? Uh, Hope and Crosby. Yeah, those are all the road movies. We were basically making a road picture. Right. <laughs> and um, well, and wasn't that what you and Will just started out? It's like, how do we do a road picture? Yeah. Yeah. And um, we were, you know, the, the, the lyrics were just, we started out, oh, we're breaking ourselves up. And right. It's like, you know, Sue Sue's an ambassador. This kid has got an ambition. Right. Uh, to, she has a special package yeah, to deliver. That's her mission for those of you who came in late. We call, call that, that exposition. exposition. Yeah. There's some like, really clever lyrics. It's like, oh, they'll never use that. It's like, hey, we'll use it. But um, and here's another bit of trivia. Um, the Regina, the Queen of Calari, yes, um, is named after our writer's assistant. One of our writer's assistants was named Regina Calari. She's yep. now Regina Hoffman. In case you're listening, Regina. But um, <laughs> we're like, oh, Regina Calari. If she was like the, let's spell it differently. Yeah. And we'll, that's a Seuss name, Regina, the Queen of Calari. And I think she was mentioned in an earlier episode. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, talking about real people, the the pilot, the Zubblewump episode, Megan Mullally. Uh, David Steve, David had worked with Megan Mullally. Her, I think it was her first show, wasn't it? Uh, Owen Burstyn's Something show like that. Yeah. Before, this was right before she did How to Succeed on Broadway. And I think uh, in, in the uh, Road to Clary, we also have mentions of the other writer's assistants, too. Oh yes, Mar- Marcello, uh, Mar- Marcello of Pacon and, of Pacon and, and Kelly, Kelly of, right? But no, but the Megan Mullally thing—it's such a Susian name, and then this actress, and then this—you know—named after a very real actress with a very Susian name who went on to become the Megan Mullally. But yeah, like getting to do Max. Uh, I Kathy did Max in the first episode that Max appeared in. But then when Kathy did Morton, she handed Max off to me. And Max was the first time I ever did a puppet that really didn't speak. And um, I was worried about my puppetry skills being able to support a character that wasn't speaking a real language. So it, I mean, Seuss single-handedly made me a, just a better, well-rounded puppeteer all around. I, I, I don't think I would be the puppeteer that I am or the performer that I am if I hadn't had that experience. And and I don't, and I have not had an experience quite like that with that amount of work in that small concentrated amount of time uh, ever again, gotten to do really fun, wonderful things, but to do that much, that kind of prolific 40 characters in two seasons or 30 characters in two seasons. Like, yeah, I think, well, when I did, uh, 
another Mo, Mo Willems is sheep in the big city. I think I got to do like 30 characters for him, but it's different. It's, 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 it's voiceover. Um, it, it's, it's a little different than puppetry and, you know, there's no assisting and right-handing in animation, but yeah, it, like I said before, it was as close to the true Muppet experience that I had always sort of hoped and dreamed it would be like, um, you know, where I could get to, to, to do stuff and not just be a grunt, but I like being a grunt. I'm still like, I'm still a grunt. Still a grunt on Sesame Street once in a while. Well, not once in a while. I'm a grunt. I right hand all the time. It's great. It's great being part of an ensemble. And I, I said, you know, there were times we we would sit around, we would work. We knew while we were writing the show that uh, if Ted Geisel were alive, he odds are he wouldn't really let the show happen. <laughs> oh, no. um, <laughs> that's true. And um, that's very true. So it was, weren't they publishing Daisy Head Maisie around the time we were yeah, think, like they found yeah, that and, yeah. and I think we, there was concern about like, should this locked drawer have been opened? <laughs> but I had actually, I think coming back from White Plains, we talked to, to Herb about the whole thing of, uh, you know, why are you right. putting out so many of these things and why are you licensing out? And to him, he sincerely thought it was about preserving the, the copyright. And to, it wasn't know, just a line. You know, he. Th I think that's what he thought, even though he was an agent. Yeah, and he got ten percent of of, know, a <laughs> of, of a lot of a yes. thousands and billions that's, that's of dollars. Right. Yeah, that's I think right. it was ICM was the agency that represented Dr. Seuss Enterprises, mm -hmm. and I think that was you know. I, I, but uh, you know, I remember getting a fax. Uh, we got you know this was how old the show was. Mm -hmm. We would um, the estate would have to approve the storylines. And they would approve the, they would have to approve the premise or the outline. And then once they did that, the, the estate had no further notes. I wonder, I wonder if that happened in season two. I have and no then, clue how that worked. Yeah. And then it was so Nickelodeon would continue to do the notes, but right. the, once the estate approved the story, they stayed you know, out of your they hair. They stayed out of the hair. And I remember we sent Road to Calary off and mm -hmm. I, I still have the, the facts. Um, somewhere in my files because i kept it and herb just wrote on it ted would have liked this one oh that's sweet that's um, nice yeah well you here you so you know here's what's interesting i i when we knew we were talking to you i i looked in my little seuss file and i happened to have the the tv guide review that came <laughs> out in uh, march of 1998 so it was talking about the second season obviously because it was you know weekdays at 11 a.m so it was definitely season two. And of course, uh, it, it's titled Flat in the Hat. So, you know, it's not that great. Uh, oh, no. And it's got the 26 little cats. So, you know, it's season two. But then they start talking about uh, the, the, the humor being more vaudevillian. Example, operator, call me a cab. Okay, you're a cab. That's from season one. That's from Road to Calary. So I don't know what this guy saw whether he watched <laughs> one episode or and then like a sizzle reel or multiple episodes or i i honestly don't know That's um interesting. he did not he did not love the show he did but, it for the pun he only reviewed it for that flat on the hat pun i, hold, I hold guess hold that up to the microphone so we can see that's right 
<laughs> no, and it's and it's and it's it's really it's it's fascinating. And then oh, I also I don't know why I kept them. You have to understand. So when the show came out, you know, it was we're talking Internet 1.0. So I don't know where you found these. There was an AOL page in 1997, so it's first season, and we happened to find these like entries. This show stinks bad. Kezi said in 1997, I hate this show. Take it off the air. Whoever made it should die. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, this show is so boring, says W. Malfees. I watched it once and puked. You can see the stupid strings. Jokes on you, W. Malfees. There were no strings. And also, <laughs> also, if you're going to be bored, you usually don't puke. You have to be. Really agitated. So anyway, I'm so so bored that I I had a very aggressive response. Right. So like, what's what's fascinating about this is that um oh uh Doctor Seuss I hate your dumb show you smell like fart and you look like a fart head. Um. Oh, that's the other thing that brings us one thing we learned at the uh, folks group is that kids thought the hat in the hat was Dr. Seuss. Yes, that's true. Well, you know what? And I think when I was a kid, I thought so too. I think when I yeah, was really I've, little, I really associated the cat. Because in the hat. otherwise, you know, when you think about it, we have the world world of Dr. Seuss. We never see Dr. Seuss. Right. So why it would make sense. He was the cat. in the hat. Right. Uh, someone uh, says, I think it is neat, but it gets kind of weird sometimes. Like who wears gloves 24 hours a day? Okay, that's actually a pretty great review. Yeah. I, that's clearly a child, but that's that's very nice. It's kind of a funny, like, who we wears get, gloves all the time? Yeah. Now, we <laughs> did get one, a good one. Uh, uh, but oh, what I, basically my point is, uh, this stuff existed before Twitter. Uh, people people <laughs> sucked like long before social media. Uh, so this was a Thibulous thought by Zaris Terex. I'm going to tell you that I love this show. Some people say it should be on Nick Jr. or it's not shown at a good time. Not me. Virtual reality rocks. I'm sure this is a show that Theodore Seuss, whoever, would have made himself. I like puppets. Puppets are cool. And I know how hard it is to paint each strand of hair as if it was a cartoon. I'm so glad that Nick wanted to try something different and new. This show is very different. I watch this show every Sunday. I like it because it is so magical and mysterious. This show is the source of my silliness. I hope you will keep making ep- new episodes in the fall. Thank you, Nick. So well, that's nice. That's yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, I don't know why I printed those out and kept those, but I'm glad that I did because. Well, you knew that someday you'd be on a podcast. I didn't. Right. There was no iPod yet to call well, to to, to inspire that, the term what, podcast. That's what makes your premonition so special. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, that was a tangent I didn't expect to go on, but it's no, it, you know you. it just it just goes to like that. I maybe that was one of the reasons why I was so surprised that people reacted. But like I said, I think with enough time, we grew up in a time, and we grew up in a time when in the early '90s. You know, there was all this nostalgia for the world of Sid and Marty Croft. And then they came out on video and you realized, wow, this is really bad. But I love it because I remember it from when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
that's the way it goes. Is that something that makes you feel things or is from or is for just the familiarity of something? Um, that's what nostalgia is all about. I I suspect there has always been nostalgia. I just don't know how far back it goes and what for. Like when I I, I back when I had my now defunct blog, I remember musing on when de- when movable type came in. Were were people nostalgic for the time of um, having to write everything type. out? Yes, I miss writing scrolls over and over again. <laughs> Where's my papyrus? That's exactly right. So you well, know, only the the hipster guys. That were... I, yeah, but, yeah, but what I we still what chisel I, exactly. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've really, really enjoyed this. Um, I'm sure everyone's really going to enjoy hearing more about Wobulus and about uh, just puppetry in general. So, just thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having us. Anytime. Um, and to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And thank you for visiting Defunct Land. Mm-hmm.